Hi everyone. I just wanted to give you a quick note. This episode was recorded before a lot of our more recent episodes. Ryan and I made some choices to record new things and so forth. And so this one follows the structure that we used to follow. I hope it's still engaging. I hope you still enjoy it. But we did follow our more rigid three-part structure to walk us through this episode instead of doing things a bit more loosely. Thank you for your patience as we put this one out, because next week we're going to put one out on other religions, and we wanted both of those to go together. So without further ado, here is our next episode, our episode on other denominations. Hi everyone, welcome to our podcast called Frontier Faith. We call it Frontier Faith because both of us are on a frontier in our faith life. We don't know where we're going, and our tagline is, it's okay not to know. Not to know where you're going, not to know what you believe or why you believe it. It's just a dedication, a trust relationship with our God that we are moving forward together. My name is Nathan Whitaker. My name is Ryan Harris. And today we're going to talk about something uh, that we've brushed up against before. Uh, We're going to be talking about how the church, how denominations within the church interact with one another. And the churchy word to say with this, the churchy uh, phrase, is called ecumenicalism. And this is a phrase or word, a term, that just suggests that There are certain times where the church comes together as different denominations to uh, discuss, to overcome a problem. Well, and I think it's also this this attempt to, whether knowingly or not on everybody's part, I think it's an attempt to wrestle with this idea of like, how is it that we're all the church, yet there's so much variance in how that looks, right? Yeah. Um, You know, do we have things in common or, or whatever? Like, I think it's... It's that kind of stuff, too. Yeah, I like that. Defining <laughs> defining where Lutherans and Pentecostals fit together um, as they theologically work through certain issues. And there are, in fact, certain bodies within our world that strive towards just bringing about an ecumenical relationship where we all understand each other and we're all working and so on and so forth. Yeah, like, is the National Council of Churches still a thing? Like, that kind of stuff? I think it's I the think. world. Isn't the World Council of Churches? Yeah, something like that, yeah. But that kind of stuff is all. Yeah. And there's uh, there's things within certain denominations that do that, too. Like, we have a Lutheran council of some sort that works with Catholics to work on justification. There was a big, like, thing in the <laughs> Sorry. late... Sorry, <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. Yeah, well, I mean, you shouldn't be surprised anymore, right? I'm shocked, very shocked. <laughs> uh, but I think it was in the late 90s, one of my professors at my sim, he was part of those conversations, and they came to an agreement of certain things, and it was seen as this big ecumenical achievement that, hey, Lutherans and Catholics are getting together and some within our church body were even talking about, hey, maybe we could be a Lutheran wing inside the Catholics, just like uh, you know, you got the um, Dominicans and Franciscans and so forth. Oh, maybe wow. you'll have Lutherans. That'd be quite the step. Yeah, it would be. I mean, it'd be hard for most to do it, but it just yeah. speaks to the ecumenicalism of that uh, moment and what they're trying to do. 
Uh, so with that understood of what ecumenicalism kind of looks like, you'll discover more if you're not familiar with that term. You'll discover more as we go forward. Uh, but we're going to follow our structure here and um, talk about what that was like for us growing up, how we heard about this thing called ecumenicalism or all the different ways that you talk about it, how we started to um, not break away, but it started to break away from us, and then where we are now and, and how we're coming to an understanding of what it looks like to work and live with other denominations within um, the Christian church. So with that said, uh, Ryan, how did you grow up with this concept of other denominations and maybe even ecumenicalism? Yeah, I don't remember anybody ever talking about things ecumenically using that term, right? I, uh, you know, there'd be, it's sort of complicated in that, like, I don't remember anyone um, ever saying that, but I guess what I, I do remember is it seemed like there were some Christians with whom it was okay to be, you know, not to be friends with necessarily, but that we're, we're probably not that different or so we thought. And so they were close enough, you know? So like, um, you know, if you're Pentecostal, like I was then, you know, Baptists, they're pretty close, at least in terms of the, <laughs> a lot of the broader things, you yeah, know, yeah. um, or like the different kinds of Pentecostals with, you know, if you're in an assemblies of God church, the four square church, they're okay. You know, that kind of thing. Right. Um, because they're already not that different in, at least in the fundamentals. But I think where there were problems were, well, we're with the ones, the Christian churches that were very different, right? So on one end of that, you have, like, well, the farthest end of that, you have Catholics were the biggest one yeah. that were problematic because a lot of things that Catholics do or believe were told to me anyway as, um, like, wrong and maybe even sinful. So, like... Uh, you know, I they we would talk about how well Catholics pray to saints, and that is wrong because it's not in the Bible or that kind of stuff. Um, maybe even sinful. You know, like I remember in, gosh, this is terrible. I remember in undergrad we had chapel every day because yuck. Anyway, um, and every once in a while they'd let you know during the worship service they'd let students say a prayer at the microphone. Which side note, never a good idea. Anyway, um, this one person got up there and started praying for the Catholics to be delivered of their idolatry, you know, that that kind of thing. So there, there was definitely that. And then in terms of like the more mainline Christianity, Protestant Christianity, I don't remember talking about much at all, but I think much less than with the Catholics, because, you know, at least they didn't do all the evil Catholic things. But there was this sense of like, um, but do they really have a relationship with Jesus in the sense that we do, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't, I mean, I'm sure you'd have found some who would say the answer was no, but I, I remember it being more of a question. We don't really know, you know, okay. because also inherent to Pentecostalism is this idea of, you know, you'll see the phrase full gospel, um, this idea that when, the Azusa Street Revival happened was when God was doing something new in the sense of like, this is the pinnacle of Christian experience. This idea that what we do and what we believe and how we practice our faith is, is finally what God wants 
is like the best, you know. Would anybody say that sentence, ours is the best? No, I, well, not that I remember. But it was that implicit, sometimes sort of explicit idea that Catholics were, were very suspect. Everybody else we didn't really know. And the Orthodox, I don't think, I, I don't think we just knew about them much at all, you know. Um, yeah. But I think that's kind of where it was, my experience of it was, a lot of ignorance, and then some that we knew more about. Uh, there was, and it, I guess it was a kind of superiority in a sense, but it didn't always feel that way. If that makes sense, like I don't. I think what I'm strong. trying to say is, I don't think it was always intended that way, even if that's what it was. Okay. So was it kind of like out of sight, out of mind type thing? Sort of. I think. I think it was more of like. Honestly, we've got too much else going on to be that concerned with it unless, you know, um, unless someone we love is going to a Catholic church and we don't want them to anymore. Okay. <laughs> you know, yeah. that kind of thing. But so it's not that that like, like, you know, my dad was a pastor my whole life growing up and it's not like he wouldn't do things with other Christians. But um, I think he got I think he loosened up a lot as as he you know as life went on in terms of what he did and was willing to do, but um, there was you know there were things there was this idea that you know the Pentecostal experience is is the one that every Christian should really have. Okay, you said there's a superiority, and I'm just curious because um, you know I I've talked on this podcast how we intellectually engaged with other denominations now we never like had the conversation with them but we would always like define ourselves both as who we are and who we are not and so we had more of a robust understanding uh you know than you do it seems like um that's quite the claim but just based off of what you said my question is is the superiority like because we have that experience of the holy spirit um we don't need to get engaged with them. Like, what? What is the? What is the no, relationship I, with other denominations that they that typically would be there? I think it was more. I think it was more um, well intended than that, while also condescending. <laughs> but I think it was more this idea of like, no, we really want all of the other denominations to have what we have. Like, we really do want that, right? Like, they talk about there have at various points in history been charismatic uh, movements within, say, Catholic Catholicism or, you know, mainline Protestantism and, and that kind of thing. And this was kind of the idea that, like, well, we hope that that happens for everybody, you know, because, um, like I said, we this is what everybody should desire. It's really good. It's, it's the best idea, but it wasn't always like, it wasn't at least by the time my life anyway, I don't know that this was true in early days, but it wasn't necessarily this idea of like, ha ha ha, we've got it as much as we've got it. And we want all of you to have it too, because ours is the best, <laughs> you know? Um, I don't know. Does that make sense? Like it's, it, it was more benevolent than perhaps thinking that, that ours is the only way or the best way, but it was also that at the same time. Does that make okay. sense? Yeah. Was yeah. there any like action to do something about that? Or was it just like pray and hope that they come and see that? I mean, 
I don't remember any like, you know, I don't know of any like people who thought they were missionaries to the Catholics or whatever. Okay. You know, like I don't I don't think so, although honestly it wouldn't shock me if there was somebody. <laughs> right. <laughs> um I remember like the idea of like I think my mom had a I think it was a coworker or her friend who was Catholic and she got her to come to our church for a while and was really hoping she'd come to our church instead kind of stuff. Um like that kind of thing, but I don't remember it being a, like, drive to recruit everybody necessarily. Okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of where it was at for, for me that I remember. At least looking back on it, that's how I remember. You know, side note, whenever we do these, I always wonder about the stuff we don't remember. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> you know? right. But, I mean, that's just me what too. we're talking about was our experience and our memory. So, so I, I, I'm going to go out on a limb here and think it was somewhat different for you. Uh, than it was for me. So what was it like for you? So I think a good place is actually the similarity. We had a pretty similar experience of how we saw ourselves in the relationship with other denominations. We saw ourselves as having the right doctrine. Um, Someone even used the word pure, the pure doctrine of the apostles, of the gospel, of what Martin Luther rediscovered um, within his conflict with the Catholic Church. Mm Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, I don't know if anybody would ever say, I'm pausing because I'm, you know, it's one of those things like, is it just because of me or is it because it's what I heard? But I got a very strong impression that everybody else was wrong. Like Mm -hmm. everybody else, um, at, at every level of the doctrine that we taught, they would have something called heterodoxy. So, Heterodoxy just means other orthodoxy, and it means that it is Christian and maybe even good, maybe, it really depends on who you talk to in the Lutheran church, uh, maybe even good, but certainly different. That's the hetero, you know, like heterosexual. Um, so hetero, I don't know why I use that example. But. <laughs> it's fine. I mean, it's true. It's true, yeah. Um so heterodox was a word I heard a lot, a lot. It was one which, you know, in the Lutheran world, we use words like justification, sanctification all the time, and we use these big churchy theological words. Um, <laughs> it's just funny, sorry, because I never heard the word heterodox until I started my my last seminary with you guys. <laughs> never, I didn't even know what it meant. You know? But yeah, heterodox all the time. So, you know, we would call you good folks heterodox, but... Mm-hmm. You were still whatever. And we did have that superiority. Uh, Again, I don't know if it's my takeaway or if it's reality, but I felt that it was it was a benevolence, but it was also a superior smugness. It's like we've got this thing and it is the thing. Yeah. 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 And it is the the teaching of Jesus Christ. I just did a confirmation today. And I had to take out a little phrase that said, uh, the pure teaching of Jesus Christ, because I just <laughs> feel very uncomfortable with that now. Did anybody um, notice? No. I mean, <laughs> it would be so minor compared to the other stuff I throw right, at right, people. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I, I wrote the own th- my own thing, and I just started thinking, oh, I got to do that differently next time. Um, but yeah, I took that out, and I said... You know, I I just don't like that because it does communicate, hey, this is where the pure teaching is. This is where you find it. And we actually had, like, we would define ecumenicalism kind of like that. I love your phrase, missionary to Catholics. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a, an, a doctrinal missionary approach. So when we engaged other denominations, the primary engagement, now it wasn't the only, and it may not have been the most important at a given time. You know, if you're like doing hospice with somebody, you're, you're taking pay, care of the patients and that's what matters. Right. Um, if you're called in to help somebody and they already have their pastor there and, you know, because families are the way that they are. Uh, the ecumenical thing would be to just take care of that person. And yet, all pastors are trained in our church body, at least most of them, are trained to be aware of that and bring out the gospel according to the way that we see it. So that way, hopefully, it does some sort of missionary thing, right? It sparks something in them and they want to hear more and blah, blah, blah. Off you go. So our our approach is always, okay, Know what other people believe so that way you can counter it in a soft way uh, if you're a good person. You know, there are jerks in our church body just like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) You don't have the market cornered on that. (laughs) No, we don't. But it is, uh, you know, people who listen to this either now or in the future, they might be, uh, they might have a pastor that's a jerk uh, because they do exist. And some of those jerk pastors will just flat out be assholes. They will say, no, anyone who believes other than what we do, they're wrong. Well, I remember in, in one of the classes I TA'd for at our seminary, one of the students said one time, very magnanimously, might I add, well, I believe that other denominations get to go to heaven, too. You know? <laughs> and I was very thankful, very glad to hear that. that uh, yeah, I was just, I, I think, I, I don't think anybody heard me, but I said, Whew, you know. <laughs> as a TA. <laughs> yeah. So good. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to heaven, by the way, we would uh, often say, so this is kind of pointing to the smugness. Um, this was at seminary. Or I think that's the only place I experienced this. Uh, but, you know, there's this old joke that um, a so-and-so is in heaven and they're yeah, going around yeah. to all the doors, yeah. right? Yeah. And for us, it was always a Lutheran goes to heaven and Mm -hmm. they're being shown around the fullness of heaven, right? Because that's the joke. And yet there are, you know, pick your flavor. There are the Catholics, there are the Anabaptists is what we would call you folks or whatever. Um, And but quiet because they they think they're the only ones here. Right. And yet the smugness is, uh, no, actually, (laughs) there's something inherent in the way that we talk about things that you actually believe you should be the only ones here. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we had this weird thing about other denominations. Um, We were acutely aware of some of them. Uh, Now, it depended on how much you paid attention to stuff like confirmation and other, of course, sermons here and there. Uh, but we would define ourselves, as I said, not only who we are, but who we are not. And uh, in confirmation, we are not the Catholics and we're not the Anabaptists or the uh, Baptists, Pentecostals. It's all those thrown into one. Um, you know, I'm not as glib as that anymore because I think there's differences that are worth celebrating. But at that time, that's pretty much what you had to teach is, well, here are the, re- the rest of the pro- Protestants believe. Except for maybe the Presbyterians, they might get a pass or (laughs) maybe, (laughs) yeah, maybe, Um, and so on and so forth. And so we were acutely aware of that, again, depending on how much you pay attention to it. But then when I got to seminary, I realized, hey, we're actually taught 
what the I mean, there's no class denominations in America and how to refute them or anything like that. <laughs> it's just as you go through it, you pick it up because certain theological I- ideas always have weight in uh, institutionalized stuff. So Pentecostals would hold on to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so something like that would be brought up and they would then counter it or provide some context for us to be able to counter that if, which is always hilarious to me, but the whole contingency was if somebody in our church body or in our congregation uh, asked about those questions, it was like, Mm -hmm. no, I don't think that's why you're really teaching it, but okay. Yeah. Um, Anyway, so that's kind of what ours was. Did that make sense? I got excited and started talking really quick. No, that was good. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so that's kind of the, uh, like, how you thought about it logically, theologically, certainly, you know, doctrinally or whatever. But, um, so what did this kind of look like in practice for you? Like, did what did it result in doing any kind of ecumenical things, or, or what did that look like? For ecumenical things, it was really focused on having conversations that led to uh, changing or agreeing about... Uh, justification. So uh, changing others so that they would kind of say the same thing maybe in their own vocabulary mm-hmm. uh, and then agreeing with how we did that. And there was this big thing in, in the late 90s, I believe. And there was this big thing in the late 90s, I think, where a big conversation with Roman Catholics led to, I think it's called the Joint Declaration, And it was something where we agreed on certain elements of justification. And that was a huge win because Lutherans are still carrying that baggage from 500 (laughs) years ago, you know. Right. It's like, let's get some uh, Catholics together so that we can uh, agree on. Now, it wasn't, of course, all the way. Otherwise, um, in principle, at least, the Lutherans could join the Catholic Church again because it's a protest, right? Protestants. Right. But... (laughs) That's kind of how we do things ecumenically, how we operate with other denominations. Um, there are like three things that have been going on. Uh, so word and sacrament, we have to be very careful about in our worship services. Uh, Non-Lutheran pastors or really non, non-denominational uh, pastors can't preach within our pulpits. Right. Um, and they also can't give the Lord's Supper. Um, mm-hmm. And all of that stems from exactly that, the doctrine that we've been talking about. So we don't want, it's not that we're necessarily concerned about people being taught false doctrine, just other doctrine, right? We don't want that. In fact, our, our publishing house has a three, I'm kidding you not, a three-tier doctrinal review. So... <laughs> Three I'm people not surprised to hear that. Yeah, have to go through that to make sure that it meets doctrinal review uh, before it can be published. And eventually, there's some good work that comes from our our publishing house, but uh, more often than not, it just ends up being something kind of tame because you know well, if you you're just get it through the, the yeah, commission, yeah. right? Yeah. It's just a nature of a system, right? It's I get it, I get why they do it. I also get why it comes out the way that it does. Right. Um, and there's a lot of stuff there. I don't want to drag them through the, through the mud for no reason. Um, but it just highlights our huge emphasis on doctrinal uh, purity or purity, doctrinal yeah. safety or whatever. So you can't do those things, certainly. And neither can uh, Lutheran pastors of, of my church body go and preach in 
other pulpits. Um, the one that Which is interesting because you'd think that might be an opportunity to show us all the lights. Yeah, right. But uh, the whole thing is uh, the way that they have this conversation, it kind of applies to what the third thing is, would be around prayer and public worship. Mm-hmm. Um, Lutheran pastors have to be careful about participating in public worship because of, I'm not going to say the term, but because of some uh, theological problem that comes up. And uh, the problem is this, at least the way that we talk about it with ecumenicalism and all what we're doing is we don't want to give the uh, impression or belief to out in this sense, it would be our church members, our congregation members and our church body members that, for instance, Catholics and Lutherans are on the same page mm-hmm. on this kind of stuff. So. I don't know if that's valid, but we're kind of talking about, you know, why people do things right now in in my church body. Uh, And there's this kind of fear there. Um, I felt the fear constantly. The fear with the smugness kind of is is an interesting mix, right? Because it's like we have this thing called the purity, but we're also afraid of diluting it or... Well, you want to keep it pure. Yeah, Yeah, right. If you believe that it is pure, the last thing you want to do is mix heterodox things into it, I guess. Yeah, I guess. So uh, lately there have been some big controversies around uh, that, uh, but it comes mostly to other religions, which we're not talking about right now. Uh, But it does become an issue. Uh, I can't remember. There was the Sandy Hook horribleness, the massacre. Mm -hmm. And I can't remember if the pastor there, I think the pastor there didn't have other religions in their prayer service. I think it was just other denominations. I could be wrong. Someone listening to this in my church body could say, no, that's not right. Um, But even if it's not technically right, that would still be a problem because of this. Right. Um, Even in the face of something like that. Right. Now we would want to do like, if we want to do prayer services, which we love to do as Lutheran pastors. um, I mean, I don't. Most but. pastors, you know, <laughs> um, honestly. Yeah, they like to go to those things, but they Lutherans will make sure they're the only ones praying or the only ones doing it, unless another Lutheran pastor, of course, is. Um, and usually that works for those monthly meetings like city council or, you know, breakfast that they have and this, that, or the other. Uh, but we'd get kind of nervous the more you start to include other denominations. It sounds like I'm uh, like I'm getting pretty technical and precise in terms or let's say uh, there's a lot of things that I have to consider as a Lutheran pastor. It sounds like that wouldn't be even close for you. Is that true? No, I mean, I think there's more of there would be more of a case by case basis in terms of what most people in my world former world would have been willing to do or not do. Um, Although there would be some non-starters, right? Like I don't, well, you'd never see, for example, um, the Assemblies of God Church having the Mormon bishop to come speak, right? Like, I mean, there are things that would never happen, right? but in terms of uh, otherwise, it'd be, you know, more open to it than you are, but uh, it would depend on some things, you know, Okay, I think is how it would probably be. But it's not very common that you that they would think about it. Um, you know, it really depends. Like it would be and certainly it would be OK in terms of like community events and like uh, okay. you know, food yeah. banks, like those kinds of things. I don't I mean, honestly, they'd probably be OK doing that with like with Catholics or whoever. Right. Because there's a very tangible thing that's helping somebody. And that's not 
that's not approving of anybody's doctrine either, right? right like that kind right. of thing. So, um, yeah, we're the so, same. We yeah. we would get involved with all that stuff. I'll tell you a quick story where I was, where I am right now. Uh, I'm gathering a lot of churches in our area to kind of, you know, COVID stopped a whole lot of this, but right. uh, we wanted to get together and see how we could serve our community because there was nothing in our little area of the town that uh, had that. And as I sent out the initial email to everybody, I got one from another Lutheran denomination that's actually more conservative than ours. And the pastor that said, uh, aren't you not allowed to do that? And <laughs> Checking I, up on you. Yeah. And I said, no, uh, kind of like what I, we talked about here. Well, we can't preach. We can't do communion uh, across con- congregations. But we could certainly work together. There's no reason why we can't. In fact, our, our food bank that we have is just a collection spot that goes to the Methodist church in our right. area. And we've built a relationship with them. We are in the um, city council of churches, whatever you want to call that thing. Um, I don't think that's our official name. And the one that I'm doing is being celebrated by a lot of people in my congregation because they want to get together with other Christians. Right. Yeah. So that's kind of how we both grew up with this idea of other denominations, or rather the reality of other denominations in our world. And how we should operate with them, uh, either theologically, logically, or uh, practically in the practices that we have with each other. Uh, Ryan, what kind of questions started coming up as you thought about this growing up, um, either within or outside of your heritage? Yeah, I mean, it probably won't surprise you and our legion of listeners to find out that (laughs) what started making me ask a lot of questions (laughs) about this is uh, I started having some experiences that didn't fit within those uh, things I'd been taught either explicitly or implicitly learned. When I had any kind of, honestly, any kind of relationship in a significant sense with somebody who wasn't from my uh, my, you know, denomination or, or even close to it, right, in the sense we talked about, is when the things I thought were supposed to be the case weren't necessarily the case. You know, you you just assume something and then someone who's actually from that group you're assuming something about is like, what are you talking about? That's not true, you know, or like, that's not what that means or that's not why we do X, Y, or Z kind of stuff. And, and you know, a few times, you know, so being in a seminary filled with uh, – you know, your type of Lutherans taught me a lot about Lutherans that I didn't know. And I remember somebody asked me when I told them I was going there for grad work, they said, um, why are they, are they Christians? You know, and not like in the sense of like, they must not be, but they really didn't know. They weren't sure about you all, you know, and I'd been there for a bit. And so I was like, well, yes, you know, (laughs) yes. Um, uh, but like, I don't know that before that I would have said you weren't, but I would have not really gone there, you know, because I just didn't know. And what I discovered, though, is I had as I had more experiences with people who weren't like me, as I started to learn more about them. And, and, you know, in a lot of cases, I discovered I had some caricatures of what I thought they believed or practiced. I've talked about some of them on here, but um, just a, a good quick example is like I was always I remember hearing many times about how, well, you know, Catholics pray to saints and that's wrong because it's not in the Bible and it's idolatrous or whatever it mm-hmm. is, you know. Yeah. And 
Because I thought, you know, I had the impression that they were doing it as in like they were praying to some kind of um, some kind of demigod or something. Right. Um, What I discovered, though, as I learned more about it was um, it's more that they're asking these saints or whoever to intercede for them, you know, Um, and there's still questions I have about that. But that's very different than worshiping them. (laughs) Right. I've heard from Catholics. It's kind of like asking your friend to pray for you. Yeah, or like you know, because it won't surprise you to hear it comes up a lot about Mary, you know. Yeah, and I got to be honest, there are some things where I go, "Who back the truck up?" But <laughs> yeah. even in that sense, somebody told me one time, "Well, it's like if you want something, wouldn't wouldn't their mom being on your side help you out?" Right. Like that's yeah. a very crude way to put it, but I mean, you know, that's very different than we think Mary's God. Right. Yes. <laughs> you know. Um, so it was that kind of stuff that made me start to ask a lot of questions in ways I hadn't. It was seeing um, people who didn't have the, quote, full gospel or the, the had not received the Spirit in the way that I had, and yet were displaying the fruits of the Spirit in the way that you would expect Christians to. You know, you'll know them by their fruit kind of thing. And it's like, well, I see a lot of fruit. It just might be different fruit than, you know, than I was expecting or something. Um, So is it primarily through us, uh, us, we Lutherans, that you experienced that? I think I think probably the majority of it was. I think there were other things like, you know, I... um, like we had to go to, we had to do an assignment where I ended up going to a Catholic mass for yeah. three or four weeks. And I had to learn, not just go, but I had to research and write a paper about what was going on and why they did it. And, yeah. and so that taught me a lot. And, you know, and I remember having a really good friend in high school was who was um, Latter-day Saints, which is different. But again, I, I learned a lot about, plus I spent a summer in Utah. Um, I learned a lot about what they're doing and not doing. And and enough to say that I don't understand a lot of this and I don't know if it's all, quote, OK, but I was much less comfortable asserting that it wasn't in yeah. a lot of the cases. Right. Right. Um, it just honestly, it just came to this point with me where it just seemed so damn arrogant <laughs> to assume that, uh, you know, I belonged to the group, which in my case has only been around for just over a hundred years, right? Um, that somehow came along and got the Bible right, you know, yeah. like, like, yeah, I mean, just, and, and I know, and, and then the other thing about that was, is I realized everybody thinks that about themselves, right? So you guys <laughs> have the pure doctrine. The Mormons believe that, uh, you know, the apostles appeared to Joseph Smith and gave him the doctrine that had been corrupted by all the other churches. And the Catholics are the one true faith and the Orthodox are the true one because they have the unchanged liturgy and the, you know, take yeah. your pick, right? right? It's just every single group seemed to believe that they are the truth. And <laughs> the biggest question with that is, well, if any of them's right, what in the world has Jesus been doing all these thousand years? Yeah. You know, like if the one from early on say the Catholic Church is right, then how come the rest of us are around? And if it's one of us who are more recent are right, well, what was he sleeping or on vacation? You know, like like these kinds of questions really just didn't add up for me because it's not like there are three denominations. And, you know, in that case, you could say, well, maybe one of them's right because, yeah. you know, but there's <laughs> how many millions of denominations out there? And what would you say? What would you say to somebody who 
would answer your question and say, well, it's us human beings who are sinful and we're breaking away from what was handed down to us. You mean the idea that one of us could be right because the rest yeah. are sinful, sinful and fallen for false doctrine or whatever? Yeah, um, or at least fallen for not necessarily a sheep or a wolf in sheep's clothing, but for a shinier looking sheep. But bought a lemon, huh? That kind yeah, of idea. Right. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think it's still the same thing of like, well, okay, but then you're saying something pretty significant about the power that we have over the church, which is supposed to be Jesus's, right? Jesus is supposed to be the head of the church. The spirit is supposed to be the one who's, you know, in charge of the church. And yet we can corrupt that for thousands of years. Like, like, can't, can't, are we that powerful enough that we can sabotage God's church entirely other than one very small group of people or one large group of people? Hmm. Like, it just, what if could they that were to be say, possible? I suppose, but man, it leads to some pretty uncomfortable places if that's the case. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if, uh, I'm trying to think, because uh, this is, you know, just an exercise that, I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of other people and where I was before because we had this weird like relationship to sin, the way that we thought about sin. Mm-hmm. Like sin sin can separate you from God. That's what it can do, right? right? So if it can separate you from God, why can't it muck up the church? Well, I mean, assuming you we all believe the same thing about what that means in terms of separating us from God. Which, spoiler, we don't. We don't. But, (laughs) but, you know, going along what I think you're talking about, because I, I, you know, grew up with that same idea in that sense. Um, I mean, like I said, I guess it could, but that says some pretty terrible things about God in that either God doesn't care enough to try and fix that, or God can't fix it, or God's given up on us, you know, or... um, you know, God has only one chosen group and the rest are out of luck. You know, like it just is that possible? Well, I I guess. But man, that that makes God a pretty, pretty bad. Uh, it's not a very good place to be. Well, I asked of, that question. You know, yeah, I asked that question because I I'm still working through this. I wonder this being what I'm about to say, not ecumenicalism as a whole, but. I wonder how Lutherans really think about the time before Martin Luther, right? Mm. So Martin Luther comes and rediscovers the gospel. 1500 uh, or so, 1500 right? Somewhere or so, in there. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, he does the 95 Theses, which is supposed to be a reformation of the church in the very literal sense of the word, or let's say tight sense of the word, that it's really meant to reform the Catholic Church. That's what mm-hmm. Luther's trying to do. And then, of course, that doesn't work because of um, power and all that kind of stuff. and All kinds of other stuff. Yeah, yeah. a whole ball of wax. And uh, it doesn't happen. And so Luther, you know, sadly kind of starts doing his own thing. He doesn't ever, you know, make his own church because he's not quite that much of a jerk. Although, I don't know. I don't know why. Let's just say <laughs> He had like his that. days like he the rest of us. Um, but of course, his followers started to right, and then we've got the Augsburg um, 
thing that goes on there, and that creates a new church uh, that's called the Evangelical Church, which is later the Lutheran Ironically church. Ironically enough. Yeah. Uh, so I asked that because I think uh, before all of that happens, the best sense that I get in the way that most people are taught as pastors and the most uh, the way that most Lutherans typically think about it is that there's kind of like this dark ages beforehand. And I say it like that because there's not a whole lot of like prodding here. There's not a whole lot of like, okay, when did the dark ages actually start? Because Luther rediscovered the gospel. That means the gospel was going strong for a while. Until all of a sudden it wasn't. Until, yeah, the Catholic Church did something that kind of hit it. And there could be, you know, arguments with uh, historians and theologians of when that might be. But for the everyday person, including the everyday pastor, there's not a whole lot of wondering around that. So there's the assumption that with many Lutherans that there's this dark age beforehand. And I think they would say most of them. I mean, I did when I was thinking in this frame of reference is that were there Christians? Of course, there were Christians, but it wasn't a good pure Christianity, right? It wasn't a uh, pure is kind of too strong. It wasn't a uh, an orthodox Christianity. It was kind of just like the spirits moving in the midst of everything. Jesus is working in the midst of everything. Because, of course, Martin Luther was a Christian before he became Martin Luther, the way that we know him. Um, he was an Augustinian, so he was a monk within the church. And I wonder, like, so I, I didn't ask that question. I don't want to put you on the spot and say that that's all, you know, whatever. But it's just more I'm trying to probe a little deeper and wonder, like, do most people think that other Christians, other denominations within the Christian church are kind of like in this dark age reality where does the spirit move there? Sure, but not as much as the spirit could with the right doctrine, the right practice, and so on and so forth. Which which is exactly what I was saying, where I was like, hold, a mo- hold on a moment, right? Uh, is the spirit moving? Yeah, but man, we've really, we've really made it so that it's real tough, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, and I think, I don't think I've said this already, but the other thing for me was I looked at these groups who I was told either probably weren't Christians, like, you know, Catholics, or might be Christians, but we're really not sure. And like I said, what I saw, though, was them doing a lot of things that are, you know, what I would expect Christians to do. Um, I would see the spirit moving in a group where I didn't I was told the spirit wasn't allowed to move there, (laughs) you know, like we were just talking about. And it just seemed to me that this idea that I'm not saying that God never works in spite of us, you know, in spite of what we do or however that works. But I just don't feel comfortable saying that God's primary way of working is in spite of us. Mm. You know, like that just seems that just seems to put God in a very small, uh, dependent place that doesn't seem quite right. While acknowledging I also can't say that I totally understand how all this works, you know. Um, But yeah, it was just this big discomfort of like. How can we all say the same thing in that we all have the truth, like at the yeah. same time, you know? 
Like, if we <laughs> yeah. all say it, then which one of us is right? <laughs> well, a lot of people would say that that's the quest, right? That's the quest of the church, is to right. find out who's right, and to build up the theological argument enough by well, tearing down others and building ours up. But it also, like, now I think about it, it gets into some really uncomfortable stuff, too, of, like, so, like, African-American Baptist churches, they need to believe the same thing I do because I have the gospel. Or, yeah. you know, all like, any kind of group that's not uh, white conservative evangelicals, right. it gets really problematic for me to save them with the gospel, given all of the history with how that turned out tragically and yeah. all over the world, you know? Yeah. There's like um, this weird theological colonialism that happens right. in America, or which in the mirrors world. the horrible colonial approach to missions and yeah. all of that, that I mean, really has effects that are tragic effects in places all over the world today still. Right. You know? Right. Um, so it just, it put, it put me in some spots where I just was like, I just don't think I can say that God is like that. Because if God is like that, we're all in pretty precarious positions as far as everything goes. And, man, I really hope I'm right about being right. Because if not, oh boy, you know. Oh yeah. And that, of course, is a great anxiety we've talked about a lot here is hoping that we're right. Because if we're not. Right, right. What, what what then you know what's yeah, the point right which side note what i when we learned about when i whenever i'd meet someone who has a very specific kind of calvinism right not everyone who subscribes to calvinist beliefs believes this but like some who are very i would call hardcore on this i i knew some in high school and it was like well only the elect and god chooses who they are ahead of time and and i'm like well how do you know if you are one well you don't i was just like wow that's that's like the worst lottery ever. You know? <laughs> <I know. laughs> you know, it's just like, that sounds terrible. But anyway, so. Well, and those so hardcore was, Calvinists, they even come to, because they realize some of the issues, they even come out and say that God created evil, which is like. Right. Oh my goodness. Really? I mean, God created evil? I mean, come on. I think almost any theological system, when taken far enough, gets you somewhere that's right. tough. Yeah. But there are some things where it's just like, is this really what we want? Yeah. Is this right. is this is this a good? This doesn't seem good. Like perhaps there's something wrong somewhere along yeah. the way for all of us. So, um, yeah, that was kind of what did it for me. Those kinds of things that brought up those questions and stuff. Was it something similar for you? Or, or yeah, what I think to, so. I think yeah. it was pretty much, uh, except for of course, uh, again, no surprise. It wasn't through experience as much as it was. Well, I guess you could say it was experience. It was. The experience that has been vocalized in this podcast quite a bit of me thinking about something and not being satisfied with it anymore. It's like, like, I think the best way to say it is if some stupid kid in the middle of America can find holes in someone's theology, then is it really the true doctrine? I mean, in the way that you were taught, right? In the way that yeah. I was taught, uh, because all the safeguards that get triggered whenever you say something are usually, um, you know, at the end of the road of those safeguards are either emotional or spiritual abuse. Wow. That's where it comes. Yeah. And you would think that the transcendent creator of the universe could do better than that. Right. You right. hope. So if you're relying on uh, as a pastor or a person in the church, 
your person, lay person, I guess, whatever. Um, you're depending on spiritual, emotional, I hope not physical, but I'm sure there is. You're, you're just relying on abuse to make sure that people stay in line. Uh, I just don't think that that bodes well, right? It's There's got to be something more than just, oh, well, if you don't believe this, then you're going to hell. Or if you don't believe this, then, you know, there's that anxiety that comes up. Right. And you so might forth. make it to heaven, but man, the fire's going to be licking your heels on yeah, the way in kind right. of thing. It's like, okay. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I just, and, and I'm not saying that I was smart enough to beat any system. It's just that it just seemed like if a teenager is scaring you so much that you have to use those things in your system, then your system's not strong enough. And, you know, I don't mean to, to, you know, beat a dead horse to death again here, but like, it doesn't seem to be the way that Jesus operated in his ministry, right? you know, and it doesn't seem to fit with God's character. This idea of I'm going to abuse you into accepting at least, well, at least in the New Testament anyway. <laughs> right. Um, but like this idea that it doesn't seem to be what Jesus did, um, not the way he did things. Yeah, I mean, one of the big things that we've talked about before is that Jesus mentions hell twice. And, and even and there, it's kind of They're both ambiguous. in parables, right? Yeah. There's uh, Lazarus, and then there's mm-hmm. the, I, I have, this is like one of my little hobby horses. The sheep and the goats is a parable. It's followed mm-hmm. by two other parables. I'm sorry, it's preceded by two other parables in that chapter. Uh, makes sense that, I mean, there are no visual, I'm sorry, no grammatical cues as far as I know that says, okay, now we're doing a different thing grammatically. Right. So Jesus talks about those two things, even if they were quite literally hell, even if that were the case, it's two times that Jesus right. talks about it. So why is that always where we go um, whenever there's some challenge or whatever? Well, that might be the emotional, spiritual abuse you well, were yeah. talking about. Exactly. I know <laughs> yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That was called a hypothetical question. Oh, or, sorry. Uh, sorry. Right? I, I like answering rhetorical uh, questions. Rhetorical question. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So for me, it was just kind of like, okay, um, there's got to be something better here. Uh, and I'm not really convinced that people who aren't Lutheran are going to hell, even though that wasn't explicitly said all the time. Um, nor am I fully satisfied that we have, and this is the big thing, that we have all the right answers because I can pick apart some of your answers. And if I can do that with some of them, there's either something in your system that compensates for that, right? You can say, hey, that's really cool. Here are some new things to think about. That's kind of what I do now because I think our system's bigger than, uh, well, our God's bigger than our system. Well, yeah, I was going to say, do we really believe that any system created by humans, right. any system, however, quote unquote, pure it is, could really handle the entire revelation of God? Well, and that's the thing, right? So I'm going to get into a little dangerous territory, but I feel safe enough doing it. Um, we were kind of implicitly taught that our theology was on par with Scripture. Mm. So it's it's not quite the same, right? Because uh, the Word is the Word, but we call it an exposition of Scripture, 
and a faithful and true exposition. And although there's a distinguishing between scripture and doctrine, um, it gets blurry and muddy really quick. The lines get fuzzy sometimes. And so it's not just that we have a doctrine that best explains it. We have a doctrine that comes from scripture and it is the same, just in different words. Mm. And I just, I had to start letting that go because of the arrogance and the exactly your question. Who's to say that Martin Luther in the 1500s and his cohorts were able to uh, perfectly and succinctly describe scripture for all times and all places. Right. I mean, so like, like what? God just closed up shop after that? Yep. You know? Okay. We finally got to the right place. Good luck, folks. Teach everybody <laughs> this, you know? Um, yeah. It's just, I hope that that's not true. You know, that would be, it's just so limiting. And so, uh, I mean, sure, it's arrogant and all that, but it's just so limiting of God and what God can do and how God works and, um, not to mention the always stark consequences for people who don't, who aren't us. Yeah. It's also very limiting. Like, so philosophy kind of comes in here, right? Because philosophy always thinks they're answering the big question. And then the next generation says, nope, you got it wrong. Here's the next yeah. question or here's, right. here's the right answer or whatever. Philosophers tend to eat their, eat their, uh, <laughs> yeah. what's the word? Not professors, but whoever taught their teachers, yeah. you know? Yeah. And our classic example of that that Ryan and I have both mentioned is this man, Ludwig uh, Wittgenstein. And he wrote (laughs) a very interesting guy. I think I would love him as a professor and hate him at the same time. Mm -hmm. Um, But he wrote his first book and he he actually stopped philosophy after that because he thought he solved all the problems of philosophy. Here is the answer. Yeah, it's, it's no joke. He actually thought that. And then... Uh, I don't know the sequence of events, but something happened where he's like, okay, wait a second, I didn't. And then he writes a second volume. I don't think he does the same thing. I think he learned his lesson, but he's like, here's a lot to consider. And it was kind of like a magnum opus where it's yeah. like, here's here's a lot to consider. And that's later Wittgenstein is what a lot of people use for, for now. But I mean, how is that any different than Luther coming along? Even though he didn't do this, we kind of mythologize him this way, but him coming along and saying, hey, I've got it. And then later on, you know, uh, Azuzu Street happens and they say they've got it and right. on and on and on. I don't know how that's any different. Right. It's not. I mean, it's, it's not. Right. That's, yeah. That's what we're saying. And and like so many things we've talked about and and all the things we're looking at re-examining kind of stuff is like, is this really what we want? Like, even if this is correct, which I'm not like, is this what we want? You know, yeah. are you sure that's what you want? Um, well, there's a, a depth, right? That's a word I always use, a depth to, of course, philosophy. That's what philosophers, modern philosophers are all recognizing now. There's so much depth here that even though we've got our big figures, we now recognize that the, the big figures aren't people who solved it. They just opened a new avenue, right? right? Heidegger didn't solve anything. He just opened a new avenue for people to think. Derrida didn't solve anything. Well, <laughs> he wouldn't even he, claim that. <laughs> I don't think he solved anything. <laughs> he caused more problems than not. His, um, his business was not to solve things, but yeah. Yeah, and you, you can take any philosopher, um, and, and that's just the nature of philosophy. I think 
probably and and kind of moving to the next part, which is where am I now? I think where I am now is in the same way that I saw that in philosophy, I started seeing that in theology. I want to give an example of two philosophers who uh, are in my dissertation, if I ever get it done, but in my dissertation that kind of highlight this. All right, so uh, Heidegger is a big philosopher um, in Germany, and he starts a new trajectory. And the guy I study, Levinas, uh, he he kind of brings some questions to Heidegger and says, okay, but what about other people is basically what he says. And he does a lot of work, and I think it's fantastic, and I love a lot of what he does. Then there's this French guy, Jean-Luc Nancy, uh, spelled Nancy, uh, and my pronunciation was probably terrible, but he saw what Levinas was doing and others, and he said, okay, I'm going to look at Heidegger through their eyes, and I'm going to see that Heidegger actually answered all of their things. Uh, that sounds wrong. That he actually gave the tools for us to address the concerns that these other philosophers are bringing up. So in this engagement with these other philosophers, Jean-Luc Nancy, he comes up with this thing called being singular plural. And there's a lot of like technicality that I could go into and I would just bore everyone to tears. But the, the work is actually combining Heidegger or reading Heidegger through these questions and through these other philosophers. And what he does is he actually suggests that Heidegger had a depth to him that we need to explore. Now, as philosophers go, people, you know, disagreed with him and said, you're reading too much into him and blah, blah, blah. But I think it was like a healthy way to think about theology. It's like, let's look at our theology that's been handed down to us and we honor it, right? Jean-Luc Nancy honored Heidegger, but he also recognized that because of what happened in the world since Heidegger died, there was a lot that happened and needed to be addressed in the philosophical world. And why can't theology work that way? Why can't we say, okay, I honor, of course, Jesus, but I also honor Martin Luther. And instead of saying, hey, Martin Luther had it all right, and we just need to verbatim say everything that he said and assume that that was objective reality, whatever the hell that means, why can't we read Martin Luther and say, hey, you know what? There's actually been a lot that's happened since Martin Luther died. It's been quite a while. Hmm. Um, Can we... Can we not change? That's not necessarily what would happen, but we kind of look at Luther and say, okay, these are things that Luther didn't really consider, but maybe there's a depth here to Luther that, of course, and you go all the way back to Scripture, of course there's a depth to Scripture, right? That's the wonder of the Word of God is it's so deep and so powerful that there's so much there. And it's not rethinking in the sense of, hey, let's let's throw out everything, it's the rethinking in, in the sense of maybe there's something deeper here than Luther could have discovered. And maybe as we're doing it together, this thing called theology, Christian life, life with uh, life of faith, we start to discover a bit more. And that's kind of where I start in moving. Does that all well, make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. And it just it kind of makes me think, too, of like, even if you just look at Scripture, I mean, you see this continual process of developing or or unfolding revelation. I mean, uh, what the Bible teaches changes a lot from Adam by the time you get to Jesus, yeah. you know. Uh-huh. Um, and even like Jesus, so we have what the 
Gospels tell us Jesus taught and did, right? And then the apostles teach us what that means. So Peter gives a sermon on, you know, in the first part of Acts, and then things, other things happen there. And then Paul clarifies Jesus as well as Peter. And, and then James says this because, you know, this other thing wasn't addressed by Paul or Peter or whatever it right. is. Yeah. So if it's worked that way for the apostles. <laughs> <laughs> you know, not to mention the church fathers and then the reform, you know, then the, the whoever the good popes were and then the reformers and then the, you know, modern stuff. It's just like, could it be, I think it might be, that I think this is maybe God responding to how we as human beings have changed, how society changes, the needs we have and the questions we ask. Like there's this, like the scriptures have this neat ability to um, both answer the questions of the people who asked them when it was written, as well as say things about the questions we ask. But sometimes we need clarification in a different way. You know, yeah. the people that Luther spoke to needed what he had to say. I really think God prompted all of that stuff that happened. Yeah. But people also needed the stuff that happened in the various revival movements and, um, you know, any of these other things. Like, it's just, I mean, just think about the kinds of uh, issues and concerns and questions we come up with in 2020, especially this year, 2020. Yeah. Compared to the kind of things they would have asked in 1300 or 1800 or when Jonathan Edwards was preaching or whatever it was. Or like, 1980. I mean, exactly. my goodness. Yeah. Gosh, 2000. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, I mean, things have just changed so much. And I, not just that we would want to, but it seems to me that it fits better with the pattern that God has showed us of how God works with us in that God works with us where we're at. and. You know, there are some things about the human condition, like I said, that have always been true. I mean, you read Ecclesiastes and you still get something out of it. Mm -hmm. If, well, yeah. maybe, depending. Maybe. But I mean, like, you can ask similar questions today, but you also ask questions that they don't ask, or you ask them in ways that are fundamentally different. And so I think more where I'm, where I'm kind of at now is that Instead of any one of us having the truth or the pure doctrine or whatever, I feel like we have what we need and that God gives us what we need to experience God or to have a relationship with God. Like God works with us in the way that will work for us, I think is what I'm trying to say. Like, yeah, perhaps it's that God knows that some people are going to respond to what God is doing the best in a Lutheran context. And so that's available. Maybe God knows that some people like me are going to respond more, at least at some point in their lives, to the more emotional, experiential thing that I grew up in, right? I mm -hmm. mean, who knows? Like, I don't think that instead of limiting God, that sure seems like that better reflects God's, I mean, like I said, transcendent nature. Like, God yeah. really is everything to everyone right yeah and you know as you were talking i couldn't help but think uh there's a st stark difference between the ministry of peter and the ministry of paul oh yeah i mean paul says some pretty not nice things about peter yeah. and usually we gloss over that and say well they're all disciples and 
you know, they they get along, they agree. Of course, there's the Acts Council and Acts 15. You read Galatians 1 and it's not okay. Yeah. And and yet, God works through both of them. Yeah. Right? And they have have more than just personal differences is kind of what I'm hinting at. I think they have more than just personal differences. They have, dare I say, some theological differences. Um, yes. <laughs> I know. That's controversial in the world I came from, too. But it's like, well, did you read it? You yeah. people are supposed to be the literalists. But anyway. Right. Um. <laughs> well, and you know, I'm going to surprise you. Um, you know who got this right? Uh, who? Ken Ham. Oh, wait. You're going to have to explain that. <laughs> so Ken Ham is uh, the Answers in Genesis guy. He is... Well, how would you describe him? I would describe him as infuriating. <laughs> he is a young earth creationist, uh, biblical literalist, especially in terms of, you know, in regards to evolution and science. Um, isn't he the one who built some kind of ridiculous, gigantic ark in yeah, Kentucky? Yeah. Yeah. He's the, he's, he's got a creation a... museum, so to speak. Yeah. Um, yeah, you a know, fraud because of, yeah. he's took uh, taxpayer money to do that. And well, I am just shocked to hear that. Yeah, so he's not the greatest guy. <laughs> At least, I mean, uh, of course, anyone listening knows that evangelical and conservative people love him. Conservative Christians love him. <sighs> but in his most recent book, which I was forced to read by some guy in my congregation, so I just read it. Uh, it was nothing new. It wasn't all that. But he, the interesting part was he actually admitted this. He actually said that there's a time for Peter and there's a time for Paul. Hmm. And I thought, I don't think you understand how revolutionary what you're saying is. <laughs> he probably doesn't mean it the way you're taking no, it. No, <laughs> he probably doesn't. Yeah. Um, and usually I'm better than this. Usually I would say, you know, what he actually means and then how I took it. But the way I was reading it, I was just thinking, oh, my goodness, yes, there is a time for Peter. There's a time for Paul. Mm-hmm. In other words, maybe ecumenicalism if we shed away this weirdness of being right and all the other stuff that we've talked about today, we get to what Ryan said is maybe God works in certain times in certain places through certain people as it develops, as theology develops, not in that we're trying to get better at theology, mm-hmm. but that we're becoming more appropriate for our times and our places. Maybe that's how the spirit works. And I think I'm almost as fully on board of that as I can be because I'm not totally aware of all the dangers that are around that. So I, I, I can't, you know, we don't do that here anyway. We don't fully right. come on board with any position, but it is kind of more comfortable for me to see it that way, that maybe God's working through Peter, um, not with me, that'd be more with you and Paul <laughs> with us, you know, it's, mm-hmm. uh, I think that's just as simple as it is for me. Yeah, I mean, I mean to use Ecclesiastes again, there's a season for everything. Yeah. You know? I mean, like, yeah, I think that's just where I'm at. And, you know, like, does I think you, you said the part about I don't know where all the dangers are. And it's like, yeah, I don't either. But I won't use the same story I've used many times. But I would just say is we got to stop being so damn careful about everything. Yeah. I mean, at some point we have to do like Abraham when God said go and Abraham went, you know, like I just, 
I mean, what Abraham did with Isaac was certainly not being careful, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, in any sense of the word, there's just any number of examples where um, we're so cautious and so careful that we we never go, we never look, we never explore, and because like we don't think that God can keep us. I guess I, I mean, I know, especially from my theological background, where I guess we don't think that God can keep us. Um, like we have a lot of power there, but even so it's like, do we really trust God? You know, are we really that powerful? Do we really want to be, but, but more than that, like just, gosh, like just go, you know, yeah, <laughs> give it a shot. See what happens. You can always change course. You can always, <laughs> you know, you can always make yeah. mistakes and yeah. fix things and learn from those mistakes. Like it's just, uh, you know, it, we just got to stop being so safe all the time. What what's sparking in my mind is the faith life of Peter. Yeah. He Peter. had quite the varied experience, didn't he? <laughs> yes. And notice how Jesus responds to him. Mm. Jesus, except for the famous, you know, dismissal that he does, get behind me, Satan, all that. He's not saying that to Peter, I think. Um, textually, you can say that idea should be behind him, not Peter himself. But Jesus doesn't say... When, you know, up on the Mount of Transfiguration, you know, you've got the wrong doctrine here. Um, <laughs> right. And we need to have a talking to, you know, he didn't do that or he didn't do the extreme of, well, to hell with you. I'm going to find somebody that actually gets it. Right. Uh, and I'm kind of pointing back to this journey. I think what we see with Peter in his faith life is he has a journey. In fact, he does the one thing that you're not supposed to do, which is yeah. deny Jesus Christ. And still, and still he comes back, right? Uh -huh. And still God welcomes him. Jesus welcomes him. He goes and uh, runs to the tomb. He's one of the first people that see well, him and so on and so Jesus forth. Jesus tells one of the women to, I think it's in John, where he specifically says, go tell the disciples and Peter. Like specifically yeah, mentions yeah. Peter uh, out of all of them. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, we the last time we talked about this or we hinted at this, we we said something to, akin to, you know, just let's, let's have an open mind to this and let's uh, discover things um, and be patient. Uh, I think what I have developed over the last however many months it's been since we did that is that maybe we should live more like Peter. Maybe we should be less concerned about what comes out of our mouth right away and our hearts and our minds and all that, and instead work in a trusting relationship with Jesus so that way we're not operating out of fear, we're operating out of, you know, like a kid does. My kids, I love them. They say the dumbest stuff, you know, and it's <laughs> well, because like they're young. every child. Does. Yeah, every yeah, kid yeah. does. And yeah. I love it. Whenever it happens, you know, for us, we call it cute, right? When mm -hmm. they say those kinds of things, when they become adults, we call them heretics. And it's just like, <laughs> right. Why, right. why do we do that? I know why we do that. But instead, in the spirit of ecumenicalism, how about we say stuff like, hey, um, Lutherans out there, maybe there's something to the experience of the Holy Spirit in the way that Ryan talked about it. Or can we at least ask the question and see where it goes? Like, you don't even have to start there, I think. I mean, that's, I think I agree with you. But like, if you can't bring yourself to say that, can you just ask the question and see what happens? 
Yeah, and I'm going to push. Let's let's go a step behind that. Can you at least admit that you're safe doing that? Mm. Because I think that's the problem, or at least part of the problem of ecumenicalism, is there's no sense that there's safety, right? If I cross the line, there's going to be a time where it's too far, and I'm a Pentecostal, and I'm going to lose my faith, or blah, 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 blah. Whatever, exactly, Yeah. yeah. But maybe, maybe in the spirit of Peter, it's like, Hey, maybe I can say that because I'm safe, not because I believe it, right? And that's kind of this whole thing we're doing in this podcast. Maybe I can say there's something to Ryan's experience that is true in the way that I would say justification is true. Hmm. And I can be safe. I can be loved. And, you know, whatever you're looking at that, but just to use that example, like, even if the same thing doesn't happen for you, is there anything that God can teach you through Something that happened to somebody else or something that somebody else believes, you know, like we always start with, well, I can't do that. Fine. Don't do it. But that's, but (laughs) you talk about cart before the horse. Yeah. Right. Like just like listen, learn and ask questions. I mean, I think, I think that if God can't handle that, then, well, I mean, what's the point, right? Because if God didn't want that, don't you think God would have been clearer? (laughs) You know, because God honestly is pretty enigmatic in a lot of stuff, in all of the ways. <laughs> the Bible, I know I had, I met this guy one time I worked with, and he was uh, some kind of Baptist, but he said, the Bible has the answer to every question you could ever ask. And I'm like, what Bible are you reading? <laughs> you know, because this idea is like, I don't want it to be that way, right? Like, if... But God could have done it that way, right? The Bible could have had 250 volumes. It could have, like, there could be, like, there's any way that could have happened, but God did not set things up that way. God, I think, wants us to grow and explore and change, just like you were talking about. You know what? Your kids, when we're kids, we say things that, because we were ignorant, we don't know. And we, learn things because we make mistakes and all of this stuff, but it's just a normal part of how we develop as people. Yeah. And I don't think or know why we would expect it to be different for this. Like, I don't think we'd want it to be different, but whether we want it to be or not, like, I think it's um, growing in the knowledge and experience and life with Jesus. So I guess in in terms of all of that, you know, when I used to, when I used to preach, (laughs) I don't really anymore. I used to always try to come up with, so what do we do with all of this, right? It's fine to say all this stuff and and believe whatever you want. But but if, like, I always wanted people to leave with, so what's an action item I get from this? Like, what do I, what do I do, you know? And I don't, not going to give you here, like, here are six steps you must take because it's not really what we do here. (laughs) But in terms of what I think we can all do is, can can we ask God to give us some courage to uh, follow where God might be leading us, you know, to explore some things we hadn't been, and to and God to give us trust that we'll be okay when we do so, you know, even if we make some kind of mistake along the way, assuming that's possible, like. God's still the one. Jesus is still going to say, yeah, but tell Peter it's okay, right? Yeah. Like, even if we get out of the boat and sink, Jesus still lifts us up out of the water. <laughs> you know, like, I, you're right when you say Peter's life is such a good example for this kind of thing. Because Peter kind of stumbled through things a lot. And yeah. yet, and yet, even so, Peter 
taught us so many fundamental, important things about faith. Yeah. Like I really like Peter's example because it, it gives me a lot of hope for when I feel like I'm right. stumbling yeah. through my life and life with Jesus and all this stuff. So, um, yeah, I just like, just, uh, we just need to listen what God might be saying and, and trust God to, to know where to go and how to do it and that God will keep us and we'll, we'll be okay. I, I, at least in my life, there wasn't a lot of that feeling of things will be okay, you know, and what I've been learning, I think what Nate and I've both been learning and, and we talk about here is like, it's okay. You know, God's, God's gotcha. God, God loves you. Right. I mean, what is it? I mean, like if you love somebody, do you just like push them out the door and say, hope you don't die? I mean, you know, like <laughs> nobody does that. Right. So if we don't do it, God's not going to do it even more. So anyway, there was a sermon for you I didn't expect to say, but. Um, well, that's, that's exactly why we say here, it's okay. It's okay yeah. not to know because that's just the life of faith. The life of faith is not coming to a knowledge that's pure and complete. It's impossible. Right. You will not do that with others, with God, period. It's not going to happen. That's not how we're ma made. We're not made for this kind of thing. It's okay not to know what you believe, why you believe it. It's okay not to know where you're going. It's even okay not to know where you came from. We don't usually say that, but that's true too. It's okay not to know the depths of theology like you know Ryan and I talk about here. What matters is walking in that journey. What matters is that trust relationship. What matters is depending on God, as Ryan just said, to help us through all of that stuff. Because on the other end of that is more of this journey. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Once you get to a place, you're like, okay, well, now I understand it. Just like the philosophers I mentioned, now I kind of get where I am with this. But then what if this? Or but then... This other guy said something that's really interesting. It kind of mm -hmm. changes how I see it. And it's a continual life of learning from each other, depending on God to guide us in that conversation and that journey together, and ultimately not necessarily creating a frontier for ourselves or a, a homestead in the frontier, but to embrace that life that of the frontier faith. So thanks for listening. Uh, if you have any questions, thoughts, uh, ideas of what to talk about, uh, please email us at FrontierFaithPodcast at gmail.com. I do check those regularly. And for those of you who have joined us over the last few weeks, we're so glad that you're part of this. We're so glad that you are watching or that you're listening. And uh, we want to include any stories that you might have of maybe even how this podcast is helping you. We're noticing that we're getting more than just a, a poultry handful like we used to. So we're hoping that this is impacting you, that you're looking forward to the podcast each and every week. And uh, yeah, we want to hear from you. So send us that message. Uh, but until we talk again, uh, I just want to encourage you to live that frontier faith, that faith that defines what it is to have faith living on the edge, constantly going into the unknown, trusting in Jesus every step of the way. 